Hey, podcast listeners, this one's for you and your fur baby. Take a second and imagine not having to worry about fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes, and feeling great knowing you don't have to use conventional pills or spot drops with questionable ingredients. Wonderside makes it possible with their flea and tick spray for dogs and cats. Lab tests prove it kills and repels fleas and ticks, and because it's plant-based, you don't have to worry about using it around kids and family. Did I mention it smells amazing? Try it for 20% off at wonderside.com slash podcast with coupon code podcast. That's Wonderside with a C. For years, she was part of a chorus of voices outside Portland City Hall pushing for change, police reform, and a recognition that people of color in the Rose City are unfairly targeted by law enforcement. And when the national turmoil and pain swept through the country following George Floyd's killing by Minneapolis police, Joanne Hardesty was ready. And this time, the former state legislator and community organizer was on the inside. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Artisty, the first black woman elected to Portland City Council, helped push through a series of changes to the police budget, redirecting 15 million bucks towards other priorities by pulling armed officers from public schools, disbanding the city's gun violence team, and removing dozens of officers from TriMet's Transit Police Division. Hardesty chatted with Everton Bailey Jr., Portland City Hall reporter for The Oregonian and Oregon Live, in the wake of the historic budget changes she pushed through. As Bailey Jr. reported, at no time has the budget been slashed so significantly. They talked about what she called the revolution in the streets, why she's not sitting back and celebrating her long-sought policy victories, when she knew this moment of national angst was different, and why she plans to put a measure on the November ballot to overhaul the city's police oversight process. Here's their conversation. Commissioner Hardesty, thank you again for, for taking the time to, to meet with me. And uh, I'll start with just congrats on passing a very historic city council budget and well, thank um, you for the um, thank you for the invitation and yes what a three weeks this has been right the last few weeks i was able to accomplish some things that i thought would take a second term to accomplish and and we're still moving forward i mean we have this opportunity now to really rethink everything i, I guess i'll start with the budget i mean Passing the budget is certainly not the mountaintop. You've made that clear. Yes, Lots yeah. of people have made that clear. Yes, but it's, yes. it is certainly farther than a lot of people thought the city would be even two or three months ago. And so Actually, I was, if you remember in May, yeah. <laughs> there were no votes for half of the reforms that we passed this week, right? Um, I wanted to do away with the same three uh, units, the uh, gun violence reduction team, the school resource officers, and the transit place. So ever since I've been at City Hall, three times I put in those proposals. Uh, my compromise, because politics is about compromise, was agreeing to work with the mayor to review all the specialty units and come back in February of next year so that we could inform the next year's budget. But the revolution gave us an opportunity to do something that the city I don't think it's ever done before in its history, which is after passing a budget and sending it off, radically change it in a way that we just did. I feel like the we have the public support to be innovative and to rethink the system that we have and to start thinking about what replaces what we've had for 400 years. Um, and that's the exciting part. 
But as you know, I mean, there's so many moving parts when you talk about our criminal justice system. The police are just one component of it. If police are arresting less people, that means the DA is prosecuting less misdemeanor crimes, which means he may not need the inflated budget that he currently will inherit. And so if we're prosecuting less people, then it also means that the sheriff really won't need the uh, number of people they have uh, as jailers, right? So the more we think about how the system operates, the system feeds itself, right? And um, and for the first time since I've been working on these issues, we have a chance to really unpack that. So no, I've had no time to sit back and celebrate my success uh, because there are just too many moving pieces at this moment that if we don't grab onto it and really start talking about the system, we will lose that opportunity for another generation. Because the pushback will come and it will come viciously. And so we have to actually have been able to paint the picture of what this new community safety model looks like. I also wanted to ask you, how do you feel about being in in this era? I mean, this very fast moving era. I mean, it feels like there's a lot more people now who were previously, you know, content with just hearing Black people who now are moved to putting action behind the words and the head nodding. And so I also wanted to get your thoughts on what it's been like being at the the center of that. It's kind of funny in a way, because if you think about all the 20-somethings who have been confined to home for over three months, uh, their school didn't end, their school year didn't end the way they thought it was going to end, right? They've been listening to 45 uh, uh, pontificate hate uh, and discrimination against everybody that's not rich white male. And then all of a sudden the pandemic, we have the pandemic. Now their economic future, they have no clue what their economic future is. And as the pandemic started becoming more real, realizing how our inequalities really will have an impact on who suffers most in this pandemic, right? All across the country, black and brown people are dying at significantly higher rates. uh, And that's not by accident, right? They don't have the kind of access to resources. Even here in Oregon, I keep saying, well, so you think you're going to open a drive-in center and you think that's going to cover people of color who are housebound and seniors and don't have access to transportation that's not public, right? So even here, we're still challenged with who gets tested? How do we prioritize those who are most uh, going to be most negatively impacted? All those issues, I think, came together and then just the combustion happened, right? Um, I went down one night. I had to go, right? I've been at home since March. I've been very intentional because I am in the demographic group that does not do well with COVID-19. But two weeks ago, Friday, I just had to go there. I had to go down. Um, and I have to tell you, to see ten to 15,000 teenagers to 20-somethings are yelling, Black Lives Matter, and we're mad, and we want the police cut, and we want to fund uh, supports for the community. I told them that it, because of them, this is possible, right? That $27 million would have never materialized had those kids not been in the street demanding a $50 million cut, right? So- at 27 didn't look that unreasonable, right? When uh, you got folks uh, with over 60,000 emails, 700 community members testifying at the city council, 
I haven't received 60,000 emails combined in the 18 months I've been at City City Hall, right? So the 27 million cut would not have happened had there not been this echo chamber that was really consistent. Now, the piece that was missing was really the analysis. So you say cut 50 million, why? And where? From where, right? I am not someone who believes that police will ever go away, but I believe we can actually re- retrain uh, the system so that we get the kind of police officers that we've been talking about as long as I've been in Oregon, right? We've been talking community policing forever. And when Tom Potter left office way back when was the last time we ever had someone who was absolutely focused on having community-based policing. But we also know police are the default, right? Police are not mental health experts. They're not housing experts. They're, they're not um, a social workers, but we use police as if they can fill all those roles for uh, societal ills, right? And so we have to retrain the public that uh, uh, the police are not the response, right? When you call 911 and say you're uncomfortable with what somebody looks like, that's not a call to the police, and you should not do that. So we need another first responder, which is where the Portland Street response comes in. So I get to supercharge that now because of the money we've uh, uh, defunded out of the Portland police budget. I kind of want to go back a little bit. When was it clear to you that this movement was different from all the others in Portland? When every single night, like clockwork, these young people were organized. They were clear about their nonviolent protests. Um, They were respectful of everybody who spoke from their stage. They were very clear uh, with the people who they surrounded themselves with that we don't have to agree with what everybody says, but we're going to be respectful. So for nights, I watched these young people on TV and there's fabulous speakers and they're really speaking to the lived experience of, of black folks in the United States of America. And I knew Uh, that Friday that I had to get in front of these young people and I had to show them that it's the only thing that's ever changed anything in this country is when young people organize and get mad and decide they're not taking it anymore. The civil rights movement was that way. Reminding folks that elementary school, black kids went to jail at night and got out in the morning and went to school and went back to jail at night, right? For the right to have a quality education. So this is not new. But what's new is how quickly it became a global phenomenon, right? We have 16 countries, every uh, state in the United States, um, and the continuity, consistency, every night, every night, every night. Friday before my first city council, Wednesday day when I said, I'm bringing this back. When the budget comes, I'm going to come back with these cuts. That's when I knew that we had the momentum to do something big right now. That feels pretty good, I must say, right? To think that had I not been in this seat, I wonder what the city government response would have been. And because of my deep background and my service on all kinds of task force and blue ribbon committees and blah, 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 over my 30 years Nobody could deny that I had more expertise on a city council than anyone else around this issue. I think the city's response would have been if you weren't here, if you weren't in the seat right now. You know, I I think what would have happened would, would have been there would have been a proposal that spoke to policy, but not heart. 
what are what are some examples of that? I remember talking to the mayor one day uh, when he was about to announce some uh, what he called transformative opportunities, right, around policing. <laughs> and I looked at his plan, and it was like 13 items on it. And I said, you know, people are going to throw rocks at you, and I'm not going to be standing next to you because it's going to hurt, right? Uh, let me know how that goes, right? Was that that when was that plan that he the thirteen point plan? When was that? It was the day before he announced that he was going to disband the gun violence reduction team. And what I love is, um, of course, these proposals were on the table. Mayor had no interest in it, and he's the first one that would tell you, "I would have never cut the school resource officers," right? But he knew that that was one of the things that consistently. Students have said the students' experience and the administrator experiences are as different as night and day. Administrators come in, oh, it's the best thing that's ever happened. We're so happy to have a cop in the school. And even the kids who are not kids of color actually have done their own research to show black kids will stop more, search more, question more. And they've asked the administration, why is that? Right? And the administration has refused to answer. And so... Um, so being able to help the mayor understand the moment that we're in, right? I, I continue to say, I appreciate the fact that the mayor wasn't born. I mean, he was born white, male, and privileged. He has no clue what the black experience is as it relates to policing. And I believe over the last 18 months, he and I have built trust because we've worked hard to build a relationship so we wouldn't have dueling budgets and that kind of stuff, right? But he also knew that I was not going to be a pushover, right? And I will say that I have seen more energy uh, with Mayor Wheeler and Commissioner Fritz since we have been in this moment and a real excitement about where we're headed that I haven't seen like for a while. And um, and I'm excited because we have a window. I, you know, I've been around long enough to know that uh, it is not sustainable for people to take to the street every night. Um, and because the budget vote is concluded for this moment, uh, we're already seeing a diminishment of people who are going to show up for marches, which is what it should be, right? And my goal is to help transition some of this fabulous young new organizer energy into the work that we have ahead. So what do we have to do in the next 90 days? We've got to rethink what does police oversight look like? How do we create a body that, the, that is not owned by the police, uh, that is independent, that has subpoena power, that has a budget to actually investigate police misconduct and has the ability to go wherever they need to go to identify whether or not an officer acted inappropriately, right? You get there. I mean, is is a ballot measure going to be needed? Is that something that's going to have to go into the city charter? Let me just say the plan is yes. We have till July 25th to actually submit. uh, July 25th is the date that the city council must vote in order for it to be on a November 2020 ballot. Okay, so that's the plan, to, to, to put something together to get it before voters in November regarding okay, police reform. Voters in November is to try to redirect some of that young energy that's full of energy into actually going out and talking to the community about why this ballot measure is so important. I'm hoping that a group of the organizers will, will see this as their role to actually go out and have and host house parties and education forums that actually talk about this huge shift in accountability. So that's one piece. The other piece is totally redesigning how we recruit, train, and who trains police officers, right? 
I'm committed to making sure that there's never a training at a training facility that does not have a, a community member that's a co-trainer, an equal co-trainer, right? Don't just bring us in to tell our tale of woe and what happened to us, but make sure that you see us as equals while you're training, because then you'll see us as equals when we're in the community, right? And again, how we recruit, because I got to tell you, when you look at the Portland Police website, doesn't look appealing for people of color because the stuff that they advertise, I think they advertise for uh, a population that certainly doesn't include black and brown people, let me just say. But we have that opportunity too. So in the next 90 days, uh, uh, we need to, uh, we need to uh, finish the work, create the community around a new vision of, uh, of, of police accountability, uh, redesign and reimagine how we recruit, train police officers. And my favorite, facial recognition technology. Get that done, get that thing done, both public and private, uh, uh, in August, right? So we got 90 days of very, very late nights, but very inspirational outcomes, I hope. And, and just for clarification, that ballot measure that you would you hope will be before voters in November, that would be for a new police oversight group? That is correct. Um, because uh, and one piece I left out is, of course, our legislative agenda around police accountability. Uh, go to Salem and actually work with the governor about how are you changing the uh, DPSST, the Department of Public Safety Standard and Practices, right? Because you don't want a Portland gang enforcement officer who then goes to Westland and sets up black men for false charges to then be your number two in Salem, right? So how are you fixing that? And then we have to fix ours in, in Portland as well, right? So that our training um, actually matches the partnership with a community member and making sure that we are uh, being seamless, right? I've, the training facility in Salem right now trains like you're going to boot camp. I know because I've been to boot camp, right? And I, I thought when I went down there, I was like, man, they look like they're getting ready for war. And then we wonder why when they come into a community, uh, they're not more officer friendly like. Right. Because we don't train them that way. It's conceivable that by the end of this year, we will have the most police reform that we have ever seen in the history of Oregon from all these different angles that uh, that only could happen because we started with slashing that budget and we started with reimagining what community safety looks like. So I'm excited, exhausted and ready to do the rest of the work to get us where we need to go. Well, Commissioner, thank you so much for for the time and for speaking with me. And, and that ballot measure, would that replace IPR and the CRC? Well, I mean, that's what we have to. Yes, yes. Right. Because <laughs> what I'm envisioning would have no connection to the city of Portland at all. When Vera Katz put IPR together, it was only supposed to be for a year and we were going to evaluate it. And we didn't evaluate it for 12 years. I mean, it's a dysfunctional system. It's it's not even based on the right logic. So the community has filed less and less complaints over the years because I used to be the one going, you got to file a complaint because we can't track it if you don't follow. And then I had to agree with them. You know, why would you file something? It takes two years to go through the process. And then they come back and say, oh, police didn't do anything wrong. Right. So people knock their head against that wall enough. They just stop coming back. So we definitely need a system. Even the police don't trust the system we have right now. And I know they are going to be mad, uh, and I'm sure that they will be spending money to try to stop this on the ballot. But what I know is that you can't stop people power. The Portland Clean Energy Fund, big money wanted to stop that as well. And communities of color overwhelmingly got that passed at the ballot box. And honestly, the city council could just implement it. 
but I know the Portland Police Union well enough to know that they would actually force it to the ballot anyway. So I'm just being proactive and saying, let's just send it to the ballot because then it's our message and not theirs. Let's take a break, then listen to more of Everton Bailey Jr.'s conversation with Commissioner Joanne Hardesty. Now back to Everton and Commissioner Hardesty. In this half of the show, they talk about her upbringing and how she got into politics. I'd like to talk a little bit more about what led you to this moment. Um, I know we talked we talked very briefly uh, over my time covering City Hall about right. your background. You know, you're a child of the civil rights era. That's right. Can talk you... about it at dinner every night. Yeah, and, and I just wanted to talk about your upbringing and, 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 and how your upbringing shaped and molded you uh, to where you are today. Well, certainly being a child of the civil rights movement had a huge impact, especially because my mom and dad's lived experience was so radically different. My dad was from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and he and I are the same shade. So very dark complexion, clearly black man, couldn't pass for anything but black, right? Um, And so in his time, if he was called a Negro, that was the very polite term that people used, but it was rare that that was the term that was used. My mom, being from Baltimore, Maryland, is from a family that uh, she had 13 uh, siblings uh, and um, half of her siblings were light enough to pass for white. And so half of her family would go to white only places and buy stuff for the other ones who were too dark to actually pass for that. Right. Um, And so my family has always been every shade of the rainbow. And it really did impact both my perception of race and and the dynamics of race growing up. I don't think I've ever told this story. I was in ninth grade when we moved from our little row house to this big house. Uh, So we would have backyard, front yard. You know, we were all excited, right? And we moved to Liberty Heights Avenue. And as a kid, I'm just thinking, well, we're moving into this big, this house is really cool, right? Right? We're going to all have our own rooms. It's going to be great. But the next day, for sale signs went up on both sides of us. And it took until I was a, an adult to understand the story that we were actually integrating that side of the street. Because the history on this particular street on Liberty Heights Avenue was Black people lived on the other side of the street where the row houses were. And rich white people lived on the side where my mom and dad bought our our house. But of course, as a kid, you don't you don't understand the dynamic. Um, but I remember the dentist that lived on the corner came down the day we were still unloading and unpacking, came down and said, my name is, a, you know, Dennis so-and-so, and I've been living here for 30 years, and I just want you to know I ain't going nowhere, right? And like, we didn't care, right? Like, yeah, okay, fine. But but it, it was a big deal to both my mom and dad because they understood that what he was saying was, I'm not scared of black people, right? I, you know, I, my practice is out of my home. Welcome. Like, you need a dentist? I'm, I'm right next door, right? That, that was basically the message. And so as a kid of the civil rights movement, justice has always been part of my influence, right? Um, I used to drive my mom crazy because I'd be the first one. That's not fair. We didn't make him do it, right? Just because he's a boy, he didn't have to wash dishes. That's not fair, right? Oh. So um, fairness, justice was really, uh, really shaped me growing up. I mean, I think a lot of us grow up trying to fit into a mold that is acceptable to uh, the uh, broader community. 
I feel really fortunate that I grew up in a na- in a community that was 80% black, right? So I grew up feeling really confident in who I was and all the everything around me reinforced that I was enough just the way I was, right? And coming here to Portland, and it's just the reverse, right? It's very little black people and a whole lot of white people. For me, that was a culture shock initially, and I really didn't think I'd stay in Portland. I really didn't. In fact, I lived out of my suitcases for about two years before I finally unpacked and decided I'd be here for a minute. Talk about that. How has all that influenced where I am now? You know, I have been a grassroots activist, whether it was on community media, uh, through what used to be Portland Community Media or KBOO. I've been this grassroots community voice uh, trying to change policing in the city of Portland, right? Uh, I, I actually had uh, uh, Mayor Tom Potter put together the Racial Profiling Task Force that included policing community members. Uh, we met for two years, and the police would never agree that anyone was racially profiled. They would never just stop somebody because of their race, and then when you would point out their own data that showed that, well, something's going on because you're stopping a lot of black people, right? And they would say, oh, well, you just can't believe the numbers. There's, you know, there's a lot behind the number. I've also been at um, the meetings that used to happen at the Northeast Precinct that used to be the gang meetings, right? And I would watch officers come in and give this narrative about uh, where gang activity was happening and who was doing it. And I would and I would say, well, where's your analysis? Why do you, what do you mean? Because they would just come in and talk, right? No paperwork. They would just come in and they would just do a presentation and sound very authoritative. Like we know exactly what's going on. And I would say, what is that based on? Did the mama tell you they were gang members, or how did, how did you figure out they were gang members? Well, if you live in a neighborhood, or if you go to a school uh, where somebody may have been accused of being a gang member, um, that's a huge label. And I also know that several times Portland police said they were not keeping data on black people and listing them as gang members, and independent audits found out that's exactly what they were doing. And I was part of bringing the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division to town back in 2010, right? Hoping to do the exact same thing, to to expose the racist policing practices that were taking place in Portland. And the DOJ did a bait and switch and decided they would deal with mental illness rather than what was happening to black men and boys at the hands of the police, right? So... Um, I have used every vehicle other than being in elected office uh, to try to move us in a direction of more fairness and how policing happened in this community. And I found it a little ironic that just like during the civil rights movement, it wasn't until police started beating on white people that all of a sudden a lot more white people realized we got a policing problem, right? Because if you know around the country every night at the protests, there are innocent people who are being brutalized by law enforcement just because they're out protesting for black lives, right? So it's kind of ironic that it, it normally takes white people being brutalized by the police before we can acknowledge as a society that uh, there's, a, it, there's an issue that has to be resolved. There's a lot of written reports. Uh, you know, none of the data that I am articulating that I develop, I normally actually use the auditor's audits. And when they audited uh, the gang uh, enforcement unit, um, it was really clear to me that there was a problem. Uh, In fact, we paid 
we pay over a million dollars for people to review deaths in custody. And long before I got to city council, I kept asking, so do we make any changes that the OIR group has recommended over the last decade after we've killed someone? And the police will say, oh, yeah, we, we took into, we took under advisement their, their recommendations, right? So, again, the system is built based on what the police have been able to convince both the public and elected officials what the need is, where the crime is taking place, and what the tools are that, that are necessary to solve that problem. I think now we're in a position where the community is saying, no, no, we'll tell you what we need. And what we need is not an armed response when somebody's in a mental health crisis, right? Not an armed response when someone is just houseless, right? And we as a city have failed to provide a place for them to go to be. But I'm thrilled. We, 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 my colleagues are all pumped up uh, uh, to uh, get to this next chapter. And in the next 90 days, we're going to have to show progress. And that's the commitment we made to the public. And uh, we've got some exciting stuff that we're going to be doing in the next 90 days. What made you want to go into politics? Because, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, we all... We all want to do change. We want change. But to actually put that into motion, I mean, takes a bit. I mean, so, so what, what made you want to, you know, at least start in the legislature? I will put the blame totally in the lap of uh, uh, State Senator Avell Gordley. Uh, State Senator Avell Gordley called me one day and she was uh, my House member. And in fact, uh, the House and Senate members, I knew her, Avell. And I knew our senator, uh, Ron, Ron, ah, the last name will come. I'm having senior moments now. Um, so one day she calls me and says, our state senator is retiring and I'm going to resign from my seat so I can run for the state senate. And I went, oh my gosh, who's going to replace you? And she went, you. And I went, <laughs> no, seriously, who's going to replace you? And she went, Joanne, you know. Here's a piece of advice. Call 50 people that you know and tell them that you're considering this, uh, running for this seat. And then give me a call after you've done making those calls, right? And I'm like, Avell's out of her mind because when people ask me what I think, I tell them, right? Who wants that in a politician, right? I was like, I I, I don't think I'm going to pass the sniff test, right? But an interesting thing happened when I was making those 50 calls, People were like, fabulous. How can I help? Oh, can I give you a check? Do you have an account? What's your, what? And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. I, 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 I'm sorry. I'm just doing exploratory calls, right? So by the time I was done with those calls, I was actually a candidate for a state representative um, because of the overwhelming support that people just immediately, right? I mean, there, 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 90% of people were like, Oh, that's great. What can I do? I know people in your district. I can volunteer. I can do fundraising, et cetera, et cetera. And then the people who would say, so who else is running? Right? <laughs> you know, we're not going to be people that we're going to be supporting you. Right. So you would thank them politely and you'd move on. Right. Um, I had no intentions of actually getting in politics the first time. And I certainly had no intentions of getting back in politics the second time. And you've heard the story about my anger was what drove me to um, invite Dan Salsman to just like step aside and endorse me. And uh, uh, once he had already decided he was running for re-election and he had been there for 20 years, it was the last place contract that was what made me angry enough to believe that we could do it differently. 
And man, what a difference, right? Because here we are now with the new contract uh, under talks and about to be at least delayed for uh, until next year. But uh, that's what compelled me in. So at the end of the, the contract that really made me mad enough to run for public office, I am now making the kind of changes that I've been talking about and advocating for for 30 years. Commissioner, thank you again so much for the time. And I know that you're, we went over time and I, I yeah, greatly appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. Check out Everton's profile on Commissioner Hardesty. I shared a link in the episode notes. If you like this show, please leave us a rating and review in iTunes. It helps others find the program. Until next time.